for that introduction, that warm introduction. Let me thank uh, the President Erland Kolding Nielsen, uh, Bette Thomas, and Matthias Ollander, and of course, uh, most warmly, uh, Lise Bach Hansen for inviting me back uh, to Copenhagen, a city that I've learned to love. And last year we, we spoke about Kierkegaard, and this year we'll um, speak about Kierkegaard as well with Slavoj Žižek. Right, this is a surprise to you, but I figured we would do that. Now, um, Slavoj. First of all, I don't know if you can see there on, on, on uh, the screen, we have what is called the helix Nebula, the eye of God. It's a planetary nebula formed at the end of star's evolution. And uh, the people here thought that this would be an interesting image to have up while we were speaking. Why? I don't know. I just don't the, eye, see the, the eye of yet. God is interesting to me. Sorry? The eye of God. Interesting. Hmm, okay. <laughs> now, um... But we can connect this directly later with our topic. Because I think that for me, don't be afraid, I will not talk for half an hour as I usually do, but... Um, no, 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 I'm not afraid. No, no, what, I, what I'm saying is that, um, first, I'm extremely honored to be here. Denmark is a great country, and not only because of Borgen, the TV series, and so on. But, uh, but, look, may, but also very much absolutely, so. Yeah, yeah. But, Look, there are so many things I love about Denmark. Let's forget about the obvious hits like Lego, Kierkegaard, and so on. But then you, sometimes I even had to remind my Danish friends that I think that already late 20s and then 30s, Denmark was a superpower in cinema. It was one of the... It has a big driving cinematography, it was only room, so that's what I like, and although this may be almost embarrassing for you, because he is your big name, I do like von Trier, although not all of von Trier. I hate idiots. I think it's the film for the people who are mentioned in the title, but for example, his first film, his first film, or maybe the first famous one, Europa, I think it's... Tremendous. And one of the last ones, uh, Melancholia, I think, and I don't mean this as a bad taste joke. It's, I'm not kidding, in a way a profoundly satisfying, happy movie. I feel like this, life is shit, dirt, and so on, happy ending. I really love tremendously that movie. With Nymphomaniac, you know, as you Americans say about intellectuals, Sometimes it seems to me von Trier wants to be too bright for his own good, you know what I mean? Like all that philosophical, but I like this and I like, of course, everybody likes uh, uh, Copenhagen theory, Niels Bohr and so on, who I think won against Einstein and so on. Up to, I'm so sad he was a one-star wonder. Your writer, Peter Hoke, Smila's Sense of Snow. I like the novel, where is he now? He didn't do it. So, back to the point, later if you want. When you mention this God and so on, I think the lessons of quantum physics 
about what God sees, what God doesn't see. You know that famous uh, remark of Einstein against uh, quantum physics, God doesn't cheat, God doesn't play dice, and so on. And you probably know that Niels Bohr gave Einstein a wonderful answer, which was don't tell God what to do, and so on, you know. <laughs> like, it immediately touches on our topic. What does it ontologically mean? So, I'm glad that I'm here in Denmark. <laughs> But, of course, I didn't mention your greatest, maybe, contribution, now you get my usual obscene joke, of Danish cinema to world culture. When I was very young, before hardcore pornography was popular, maybe some of you are old enough to remember in the 60s, there were these stupid sexual comedies, softcore, you know. I remember one like Mazurka in the bed, you know. It was so popular, you know, a guy gets all the women and then they inquire why, because boom, boom, he does it in the rhythm of Mazurka and so on. It's embarrassing, but that's my fond memory of Denmark also. Well, so. well, uh, 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 Denmark is a country of many differences. So, um, now, what do you I, mean by this total platitude? Um, what, what, what I'd like to show you, what I'd like to show you now, is something that came to my mind before we get to our topic, but might take us back into the stars. Mm. Um, you, you have said that uh, you didn't see any harmony in this world. And, I, and you said, I don't think there's any natural order. Natural orders are catastrophic. So let's look at clip number one. Historical. The only thing that is lacking is, is the dinosaurs here. It's like a curse weighing on an entire landscape. And whoever goes too deep into this has his share of that curse. So we are cursed with what we are doing here. It's a land that God, if he exists, has, has created in anger. It's the only land where where creation is unfinished yet. Taking a close look at, at what's around us, there, there is some sort of a harmony. It is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. And we, in comparison to the articulate vileness and baseness and obscenity of all this jungle, uh, we, in comparison to that enormous articulation, we only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban novel, a cheap novel. And we have to become humble in front of this overwhelming misery and overwhelming fornication, overwhelming growth and overwhelming lack of order. Even the, the stars up here in the, in the sky look like a mess. 
there is no harmony in the universe, we have to get acquainted to this idea that there is no real harmony as we have conceived it. But when I say this, I say this all full of admiration for the jungle. It is not that I hate it, I love it. I love it very much, but I love it against my better judgment. What can I say? I totally agree. This is my ontology. And since one of your famous interviews was also with David Lynch, what I immensely liked from the very beginning in David Lynch's world is how he usually begins a film, a shot, a scene with sometimes even kitschy, beautiful image like Blue Velvet. You know, our average middle-class notion of paradise, the American suburbia, upper-middle-class villas. Then you, you remember that wonderful scene at the beginning after a father's uh, heart attack or whatever, camera just approaches grass, gets too close to it, and then you see all this dimension that uh, Werner Herzog is mentioning, this crawling excess of life, and so on and so on. I, I, and I think, also, I also like the expression, very precise one, that uh, God didn't finish the creation of the world. Now, I have here so many things to say. This is one of the definition of madmen, you know, they always have. That I would uh, love to develop here very briefly. Maybe you know this line, maybe, but I why this is so important. I think that this brings us to, in some sense, to quantum physics. Even now, scientists struggle with what are the so-called ontological consequences of quantum physics. Because the Copenhagen interpretation simply basically says, who cares? The important thing is that the mathematic works. Don't ask the ontological questions. But I think we can tell something more. In an introduction to philosophy, I even forgot who is the author, a popular book, I found this wonderful metaphor. It says that, you know, this idea of uh, uh, ontological indeterminacy, the point is not, as here your guy, uh, Niels Bohr, was much brighter than Heisenberg. Heisenberg thought that uh, uncertainty principle means simply we cannot measure. Both, no, position and velocity, whatever. But Heisenberg still oscillated, didn't want to draw the radical consequence. It's not only that we cannot measure it, it's that in itself it's not determined. In other words, it's as if we can do even something more. That would be my correction of Werner Herzog. You get close, too close to reality, you see all this disgusting, crawling, excessive life, and then you get even closer, and you simply see holes, you know, and like, world is not fully created. Now but, I, but also the world is not in balance. Yeah, of course, but why it's not in balance? Not in a pseudo-orientalist pseudo way, not because there is eternal struggle of yin-yang, masculine-feminine principle, but precisely because it's not ontologically complete. Let me tell you the metaphor. I, uh, you will like it. You remember if you are civilized like me and play PC computer games. 
You know how the games are programmed. Let's say you do the usual stuff, killing, driving, whatever, racing, and there is a house or a tree, a forest in the background. That forest is not fully programmed. Why? Because it's not part of the game that you can go there, you know. So it's just vaguely, just outlines. You cannot go there. Uh, now, uh, uh, the idea is that something similar is the lesson of quantum physics. That, uh, to put it, this is a wonderful joking interpretation, that uh, God underestimated us. When God created the world, he programmed the world and he thought, okay, people are too stupid to reach beyond the atoms, so I will just perfectly program it to the atom. Then I will leave it undetermined. They're stupid. Unfinished. Unfinished. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 but we yeah. did it, no? Yeah, yeah. We moved, we, as it were, caught so we, God we, we, with we his pants down. So we, we, saw, we surprised God. We surprised. But now comes the point. The true difficulty, the true task of materialism today is to think this unfinished character of the universe without God. That, you know, in itself, it's unfinished open. And this brings us to the image you saw uh, before, because you know this debate, Einstein, uh, 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 Niels Bohr, can you, uh, can, uh, 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 like, uh, does God cheat and so on? I think the answer of quantum physics here is clear. No, uh, uh, it's not that God is cheating. We can cheat God. Reality, you know, because the idea is this one. We, you have the collapse of wave functions and so on and so on. But if you know a little bit, and I know it in a very amateurish way, quantum physics, its basic lesson is that in this tiny temporal interval, when something happens as a virtuality, but before it's registered, fully constituted, something can emerge and do its job, even violate natural laws, and then it disappears again before it's known. That in this way, you can, as it were, ontologically cheat. What this means, insofar as God is the big other who watches us all, is that what quantum physics calls the field of quantum oscillation virtualities, it's precisely a field which God doesn't control. Now, to, to, come, to come to our topic somewhat. We were so, already there. We are already there. But you know, uh, you, you, you are. I'm disappointed by you. <laughs> so quickly. It's hope. Now, now it can move only up. It can move, so. okay. Um, you know, you were mentioning Lynch. It was interesting to talk to him about that very beginning of Blue Velvet. But also with some other movies. He, you know, I know, I know. He goes, yeah. he goes down, down, yeah, down yeah. And, and sees the crawling. Once even on the TV screen, in yeah. one of the, I think, is it one of, one of uh, uh, Twin Peaks where, you know, you see a it's nice effect uh, in the other in direction. Reverse. You see some totally abstract stains and then camera goes slowly back and you see it simply the TV screen, you know. But you know, it was interesting to ask him, <laughs> when did he start to see under the grass all these cra mm. crawling mm -hmm. uh, uh, monsters mm -hmm. and all these crawling beasts? Mm. And his answer was extraordinary. He said to me, I had a happy childhood. Yeah, because I tend to agree with this because, 
You know what happens when we enter this obscene area at the beginning of Blue Velvet? Father has a heart attack. Yeah. Well, that's condition of happiness. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you might say that. Now, yeah. um, very quickly, I'd like to ask you a succession of questions. Now comes um, the, what they call in police jargon, the third, you will give me a third degree, no? Yes, exactly. So that now, I know you, where you, we stand. Yeah. You, you believe that, that philosophy, rather than solving problems, should enable us to ask the right questions. Yeah. And given tonight's topic, let me fire off a few questions to you and have you react. What questions should we be asking, real questions? Should we be asking about whistleblowers and privacy? Is government surveillance really a problem? What way is the right way to formulate the problem? And how did we arrive at this mess, at this juncture? Oh my God, you are evil, you know, because now to answer this properly, it would take today's and tomorrow's session, as but, I'm but sure But we you have know. time, go ahead. <laughs> okay, uh, first, uh, let me begin with maybe a more philosophical note, which I hope you will find stimulating. I hate this word. <laughs> uh, but, you know, today <laughs> it's fashionable to say, like, no longer big metaphysical questions we need to ask, like, no. Do we have a right to philosophize when children are starving in Somalia, you know, this type of questioning? I claim, no, if there is a lesson of what goes on in human sciences, social sciences, natural sciences, that precisely we have to return to so-called big, shamelessly, big metaphysical questions. In the last decades, and this, if anything, postmodernism means, the predominant orientation was so-called uh, discursive, by this I mean simply discourse, uh, logic of different discourses, uh, historicism. Like, if you spoke with any of, like from Rorty in a much more complex way, even Heidegger philosophers, and you ask him, what is this? Is this really a glass of water? He would have said, it depends from what discursive context are you raising this question, you know. And he, as if all that we can say is, and Michel Foucault did this in a more radical way with his notion of episteme and so on, the, the, the highest we can reach in our reflection is to describe the historically specific discursive field within which questions can be raised. And then it doesn't even matter how you answer them. Like, if, I, if you ask me, does man have an immortal soul? If I were to be a Foucauldian, I would say, wait a minute, within which discursive field it's even possible to answer this question, to, sorry, to ask, to raise this question. But I think this radical historicism uh, leaves something out, which is why this what was left out from philosophy returned violently in 
popular science, Stephen Hawking, uh, uh, brain sciences, and so on. I think people look there, why do people read Stephen Hawking? Not for pure scientific value of his works. Most of, the, most of his readers don't even know what he's talking about. But precisely to find questions, to find, sorry, answers or hints of answers to these big metaphysical questions that were, that were left out by philosophy. Is the universe finite or infinite? Or why do we re read Dennett and so on? Do we have a free will or not? And so on and so on. And I think I don't like this duality. On the one hand, this purely discursive analysis. I can just describe the field of meaning within which your question has uh, can function, and this brutal naturalism. Here, philosophy. Here, we need return to philosophy. What you mentioned there, it's a very good question because uh, oh, Snowden. I, I feel relieved. Sorry, I feel relieved. That I've asked you. Yeah, a but good you are question. not saved. As, okay, I told, okay. as I already told yeah, you, no, no, no. when I or people take over, yeah. you still go to Gulag. That's true. Just from my Moscow office, I will call them so that because you are my friend. Yeah. Every Sunday, you know what did they get in Gulag? The disgusting cabbage soup with some rotten fishes. You will get a double portion of oh, that. <laughs> Thank you. You're a, I, you can count you, on my friends. No, 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 you're a very good friend. Now answer okay, the question. Okay, let's go. Yeah. Go. Okay, okay, now, wait a minute, I am KGB here, okay, not okay. you. you <laughs> sorry, let's go on. No, more seriously. Uh, uh, precisely what you mentioned, whistleblowers, Assange, and so on, no? I claim that the reason I support them Assange and all his colleagues, is not because of a simple anti-Americanism, you know. I think it's extremely important that we don't reduce this uh, WikiLeaks phenomenon to anti-Americanism. So it's not American bashing? No, 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 no. If anything, listen, let's be fair. You know, the first reaction of an honest critic should be always to give to the devil, concede what belongs to the devil. That is to say, do you remember, unfortunately now he's half forgotten uh, uh, Manning, Chelsea Manning yeah. now. Can you even imagine someone like Manning in Russia or in China? We wouldn't even hear about him. You mean Probably he'd, he'd be killed immediately. He and his family and his second uncles, whatever, would all disappear. But why then? It's nonetheless important to follow what Snowden Assange are doing. So what does it mean, uh, Slavoj, when you say you support them? I support them. I mean, what they are doing is something extremely important. Why? Eth Let me ethical. Ethical, absolutely, but I'll tell you why. Okay. I mean, we'll come to the point. Uh, because, listen, in China, of course, China is incredibly more oppressive. Of course, if I were to choose where would you prefer to live, China or United States, I would prefer United States. Maybe not some small village in the Bible Belt, but <laughs> New York and so on. But you know what? In China, at least there is one thing. No one has the illusion that they are free. They know very well the party there determines you can, you cannot, and so on. So, but the horror of horror, okay, the danger of United States, and this is what we learn from WikiLeaks, from Snowden especially, is that you can have a country where people basically experience themselves as totally free. Basically, at least, you know, you do whatever you want, and, and nonetheless, you can be 
pretty much totally regulated, controlled, and so on and so on. The most dangerous unfreedom is unfreedom which you don't even experience as such. If some of you are feminists, and even if I engage regularly in bad taste anti-feminist jokes, I am a feminist. Every good feminist will tell you that the first step of women's liberation is just to realize your situation of oppression. You know, the first step of feminine liberation is when you say, no, my role that I play is not something natural, it's the result of oppression and so on and so on. So we need something similar here. That's the first point. The second point, uh, as you indicated, I'm a little bit skeptic about this paranoia, ooh, we are totally controlled, and so on, and so on. Uh, I think that we shouldn't take this too seriously. And this doesn't make the situation any easier. If anything, it makes the situation even more... So, so you, you're saying that the paranoia is not justified? It is justified, but we should be aware that, if, again, we go into theological meta metaphorics, that... Paranoia, yes, a divine-like NSA, the big eye, knows everything. But at the same time, this mega-machinery is extremely stupid. They don't know what they know. The, the, and this the, the, makes the, the, it even more dangerous. The mega-machine being what? Mean all these ultra-computers of NSA. Big, big, big data. Yeah, yeah. They stupid. don't know what... Do you remember? This is a very superficial anecdote, but it's indicative. Do you remember what happened, I think, a couple of months ago to a guy from L.A.? It was reported in all the media. Uh, he was searching on, he was googling the ways to kill your wife, something like that. A couple of days afterwards, uh, FBI uh, uh, brutally entered his house, arrested him, blah, blah, blah. Why? Because Google, who collaborates with uh, Google reported this, no? to FBI, FBI and, but you know what was the result? This guy was one of the, you know, all the series, CIS, police investigation. He was simply writing the scenario and wanted to check, you know. And you have this again and again, or from China, they told me a wonderful example of this stupidity. A guy, just before Tiananmen anniversary, a guy was professor, English in Beijing, was flirting with a lady in London. And since they were both educated, he used a wonderful quote from Shakespeare. Uh, because, you know, in Elizabethan England, the verb protest meant also, even principally, I publicly declare. And he quoted to her, I protest my love to you. Chop, chop. The conversation was cut short because the verb protest was prohibited, associations with Tiananmen. What I find so ridiculous is that if the guy were to be extremely vulgar and told the lady something like, I will fuck your brain out, whatever, everything would be okay. <laughs> you quote Shakespeare, you know, and this is a real so the, problem. So I spoke with true, people... True, the true problem here is education. Yeah, but of those who yeah. control us. I mean, you know, but computers just give you immense amount of data. And you can play with it. I think this may render such... Let me give you an example. When I was younger, I was a half-dissident. Half. I was not a hero. I just couldn't get a job, but I was not arrested, tortured. Okay. We had some meetings, and we did something which afterwards we realized... Friends told us, who knew some secret policemen, Slovenia is a small country. Everyone knew everyone else. It worked wonderful. We knew our meetings were controlled by, I mean, were uh, taped, wired, 
listened to by police, no? So we didn't hide anything. Just at the end of every conversation, we did a short imitation of ridiculously cliched, secret coded speech. You know all this, like at the end I said, mother baked a good apple pie. You know, these ridiculous codes. And afterwards, we learned that this got them totally paranoid, what this means and so on. So don't be too afraid. If, even if they listen to anything, they are stupid, those in power. I don't but fear so, so what are the right questions to ask about whistleblowers? I mean, because we haven't gotten yeah. to that. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, first, no, but first, no, no, let me, okay. One, instead of, this would be the first correction. Instead of just this paranoia in the sense of, oh my God, they know ev everything. Because they don't. They know maybe at the level of data, but they don't know what this data means. So and they so don't on. know what to do and, with but it. But on the other hand, this is not just good news. This can also mean that you are a totally innocent citizen, innocent even by their standards, but nonetheless you are classified as a potential terrorist and so on and so on. It's a much more Kafkaesque situation, you know. So this is the first thing to do. The second thing to, we already talked about it, the second way we should correct the usual perception is that usually we take all these whistleblower stuff as protecting our privacy. Oh my God, all our private secrets are uh, public, there is no privacy. I think, and from what I know you also, and many intelligent people know this, that the true problem today is rather the opposite one. That the public sphere proper is disappearing. The public sphere is more and more structured or functions like a socialized private sphere. You know, even politicians, they talk like making confessions, mixed private... I, I, I do believe that, but say something about what you mean when you say the public sphere is contested. What do you okay, mean? Okay, I will... Uh, first, I think that, although some naive leftists, even anarchists, would have criticized me here, I think that a certain level of alienation is a good thing. By alienation, I mean, now we, let's say, talk obscenely and so on, but then, when, if we have to have a serious statement and so on, you know that, you speak for the record and you speak in a way where it doesn't matter and it's simply irrelevant that you privately think that you are making love to a lady or whatever. You know, it's irrelevant, all this. What matters is what you say publicly, and this, this gap is disappearing, I think. Even politics is becoming more and more a sphere of confessions and so on. And now I will give you a very touching example, and sorry, I'm not always a bad taste cynic, now I'm very sincere. Sometimes even vulgar humor can work as marking this distance. Let me tell you a story, very short one, don't be afraid. I was told by the one who is unfortunately not here, one of the Communist Party Troika of Slovene Lacanian School, Mimladen Dolarent Alenka Zupancic. She was recently in Sarajevo and she told me that there is a linguist there, historical linguist, uh, studying actual functioning of language, who discovered, shockingly, that in Srebrenica, you know, Srebrenica, Serb massacre, maybe the most horrible crime of post-Yugoslav war, all men in the, in the town of Srebrenica killed, that there is a whole series of jokes about Srebrenica. 
made by the, made the jokes by the survivors themselves. Like, of course, I cannot resist telling you one. Uh, what you should know is that when we were young, people were still actually, uh, actually doing uh, soup. You know, you, you bought beef and some bones if you wanted so that the beef consomme soup is better. No? So when you said, I want half a one pound of beef, usually the butcher asked you with or without bones. Like, okay. Okay, so the point is, one citizen of Srebrenica returns from Germany and said, oh my God, now it's again free, it's ours, Bosnian, I would like to build a house there. Do you know what's the price of land there? And the guy tells him, it depends on the quality of the land. Do you want it with bones or without bones? And so on, you know. Now, I want to tell you something. You think this is vulgar. No, this is the only way that people can cope with it. What I consider really vulgar is for us who don't have even an idea how horrible it was there to say, you know, these disgusting platitudes, we are all in Srebrenica. We feel, how could something like that? You know, this pathetic speech of identification, this opening your emotion. No, the, is true obscenity. And this jokes, the message of these jokes is precisely, sorry, it's too serious to make pathetic statements. You have to, you know, this joke is at the same time a recognition that it's too horrible to do it directly. And I, as I often repeated, this is why I think, did you notice another strange fact? All good films about uh, concentration camps, Holocaust are comedies. Because to do a tragedy would be to concede to the Nazis already too much. You know, in a tra when that, does tragedy happen? When you have this tragic confrontation, tragedy would have been you, sorry. <laughs> you are a Nazi officer and I'm the heroic Jew. Kill me, but you will never kill my spirit. That's ridiculous. In Auschwitz, the situation was too horrible for me to retain that level of dignity. To do an Auschwitz tragedy, you give too much to the Nazis, you know. In this sense, okay, I meant with what you said, privatization, etc. that if there is something we need is more public space, not to turn everything into our expression or whatever you want and so on and so on. We need more alienation in this sense that, okay, I say something. Okay, it may be true, there are my personal traumas, my political interests, but my God, can we, can't we erase that and take it as a public statement, you know? This is the great, which is why even in the domain of art, sorry, I don't buy this historicizing bullshit, you know. To know a writer means to know his private life, his traumas. No, on the contrary, even with countries, I don't think that... Even with? Countries. I don't think that in order to understand Hans Christian Andersen, Kierkegaard, name them, I have to know all the Danish history from prehistoric Vikings, whatever. It's on the contrary. If I just come here and know the country, I will probably understand nothing. I, on the contrary, need to know your literature films to understand the country. I'm against historicism here. And in the, in the case of, since you mentioned Kierkegaard, in the case of Kierkegaard, what mm. interests you in particular, at least one aspect, mm. is the fact that he was so able to have personas. Yeah, he was well aware that precisely, I, look, I always distrust people who want what 
sociologist already long ago, I think Irving Goffman and so on, called uh, staged authenticity. Which is a fantastic term. Yeah, but I claim almost that all authenticity today tends to be staged. So the so, only way so this, to be authentic the, the, is to have a persona, but of course signal, I am not that. You know, so in, the, in, in, this, in this particular yeah. instance, we're being watched. Yeah, but I don't care if you are watched. You know what I mean? I, here I preach arrogance. So what? Let the big other watch me. Maybe he will learn something and be less stupid, you know. <laughs> uh, this is not my problem, you know. Like, you know, when we were those half dissidents, no? And a guy, when we had some committee for human rights, blah, blah, a guy But did it change your behavior being watched? No, 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 no. You know, and then you I learned through friends yeah. that some secret policemen were really mad at me because I told a horrible story then. It's one of the, I told them, and it's true, you know, I read a history of United States in 19th century where I was told that racism was so strong in the old South, anti-black racism, that when you have in New Orleans before Civil War, uh, brothels, whorehouses, prostitution houses. The white customer was making love to a white prostitute, and if a black guy entered the room, bringing drinks, whatever, they didn't stop making love. It was like they didn't consider a black person entering a human gaze which puts you to shame. It's like a dog, a bird, you don't care. You go on making love. And I told them, this was horrible what they did, the way they treated blacks there, but we this should treat secret treat policemen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Circuit policemen should be treated like black servants, you know. You don't care. And this, this is where they feel most horrified, you know. When they learn that you, that you don't that care. You don't, that you don't care being observed. Yeah. Connection or not connection between Pussy Riots and Snowden? Very good question, because here I got into trouble almost with both of them. I think that obviously Snowden made a big compromise. I am no friend of Putin. And I Snowden, know from Snowden Julia, made a compromise. Yes, by immigrating, by, by going to Russia, of course, no? And I know from Assange that simply Russia was the only one ready to accept it, you know. It was complex negotiation and so on, where should he go? Now, I don't know how it is his situation is in Russia. I just felt then, was it shown here, Putin gave one of his press conferences around a month ago, and then, you know, it was obviously all staged. Snowden asked the, uh, the question, is it that in Russia you always also listen to all people like NSA, and of course Putin said, no, no. we are a country of law, blah, blah, blah. Now, uh, I thought that maybe, but maybe he was forced to do it, that maybe he went a step too far there, you know. Like, I don't blame him for going to Russia. What could he have done? But, no, because on the other hand, with pussy riots, I was a little bit mad at them. You know, when they were the two of them, which are now... Uh, my heart is with hardline pussy riots, you know, that Tolokonikova and Alyokhina, those two were now excluded by pussy riot group. It's too soft, you know. They went to United States, okay, they did suffer in the prison, they deserved their, their fame. But the way they let themselves to be 
taken over, appropriate, manipulated by the human rights people, Richard Gere and all that gang, Bob Geldof and so on. Hey, these are not my guys, sorry. You know, like they should have at least hinted, you know, gave a hint that, again, what, of what? I think everything hinges on this. Wikileaks, Snowden, Pussy Riot, aspects of the same struggle. Which is? Which is struggle for public, public space, precisely. Emancipation, public space. Why? I will give you another example. Even in, uh, are you, uh, no, you are part of the European Union, you just uh, use your own money, which is nice. But what I wanted to say is that, are your universities also affected by this horror called Bologna reform? And, okay, it's much more complex, but the basic lesson of Bologna, the basic idea of Bologna reform is precisely to get rid of what already Immanuel Kant called public use of reason, which is very interesting philosophically, you know. For Kant, public use of reason is not when you speak publicly. Public use of reason is when you reason in a way which is not constrained by what Kant calls private goals, but for Kant, state is in this sense a private institution. For Kant, theology, law, faculty, this is private use of reason. Because, you know, you have a certain frame determined in advance. For Kant, philosophy and pure sciences are public use of reason. So it's a wonderful idea. If a couple of us meet in a restaurant and debate freely, it's public use of reason. If you, do a, if you talk in the parliament, it's private use of reason. And the idea of Bologna so, school reform... So the, the idea is that we don't have those public spaces in which to debate. Yeah, yeah. and the, directly the Bologna reform, which is going on now in all of uh, European Union, is, I claim, basically, I simplify it, but basically it's true, because I follow it in Slovenia, in United Kingdom, and so on. It's one big attack on public use of reason. They openly say, enough of these humanities studies which serve nothing, we need experts. And claim. what you would say to that is we need useless education. We need you, especially why? Because now we come to your first point. Because what, what intellectuals point? today, about, about how to ask the right questions. Yeah. The first thing to do today is don't allow them in power. They're not always bad, but they are in power. Don't allow them to describe to formulate the problem, you know. The way they want us is, I was in a debate in France where some state bureaucrat gave me a perfect example. He said, this is why we need universities. This was years ago, I remember three, four years ago when there were cars burning in the, he told me, cars are burning in the suburbs of Paris. Now we need educated psychologists who will tell us how to control the crowd. We need uh, uh, urban planners who will tell us how to build the city, easy to control. No, I think these are experts. But a true intellectual is not in this sense an expert. He doesn't uh, he doesn't provide answers to problems, questions formulated by others. No, he questions the very way a problem is described. And we need this more than ever today. For example, just think about ecology, for example. I think at least a great part of problems with ecology, I think so, is that, of course, it is a very real problem, ecology. But at the same time, there is so much uh, ideology invested in it. 
On the one hand, you have this uh, so-called holistic, deep, uh, uh, deep, uh, deep ecology and so on, all this idea, some kind of primordial mother religion, you know, we offended Mother Earth, Mother Earth will take revenge. This, this may amuse you, brought me into deep trouble when I was in Bolivia. I admire Bolivian government. They are much better than, than in uh, Venezuela, Chavez and his successors. But Morales sent some two, three years ago a big letter to all international leaders against capitalism for ecology, where he said, capitalism killed Mother Earth. My reaction there was at least one good thing that capitalism <laughs> has done. <laughs> no, but I really think, and this so, comes I mean, back, come to back to what we said. To the yeah, that, yeah, of the, the ABC of ecology today is, there is no Mother Earth whose balance we disturb to whom or which we can return. Mother Earth is a bitch. It's a nightmare. Look at Mother him. Earth is a bitch. Absolutely. Yeah. No, let me give you an example. Just think, this an example I always use. Just think about oil reserves. Can you imagine what mega ecological catastrophes must have happened on Earth before for humanity for us to have oil reserves and so on? No, it's, this doesn't mean, oh, it doesn't matter, we are not so guilty humans. No, it means the situation is even more... Slavoj, to, yeah. come, to come back for a moment to whistleblowers, I want to ask you a couple of... I feel brutally... Now I know what is to be Palestinian of the West Bank. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Okay, sorry. We love each other, you notice this. No? <laughs> we did love each other. No, anyway. Um, things could be worse, right? You speak about capitalism with Asian values. Yeah. You say, and I, my, my question to you would be, what would happen to civil rights, to the kinds of questions posed by Snowden and Assange yeah. in a world of capitalism with Asian values? Much worse than now. No secret here. Why? Much worse than now. Because, and... Often I was accused for racism here, Eurocentrism. My answer is always double here. First, of course, I use ironically the term Asian values because they use it. Like when I was in China, they told me we need to reinvent democracy with uh, Asian values and so on. But basically, uh, I simply think, okay, my God, I repeat this all the time. I hope you haven't heard this too often. But my basic idea is simply that one always has to give the devil what belongs, as already said, to the devil. Well, let's be frank. What happened in Western Europe for 40, 50 years after World War II, I don't think that ever in the history of humanity was such a relatively large group of people, most of the population, was able to live in relative peace, prosperity, freedom, safety, and so on. What I see on the horizon is that this space is getting narrower and narrower. In other words, till now, one has to admit it, communism and democracy, at least the way we understand it, did go together. Whenever you have a capitalism, yes, it did need from time to time a little bit of uh, uh, fascism or dictatorship, Chile, South Korea, but then when things start to move again, it always generated a demand for democracy. I only doubt if this still, still 
hold today. I claim that what is emerging now in China and so on, it's not, it's a new capitalism which is much more even dynamic than ours, but it no longer needs democracy. Is, Wiki, is WikiLeaks a real event? Absolutely, yes. You know why? Because it because changed you're, you're, the whole... Uh, uh, Assange herself, to an interview he gave to my uh, wife... Himself. Assange, Julian Assange yes, himself. Yes. Himself, he said herself. Really? Yeah, it was interesting. Anyway, to, to, to yeah, confuse yeah. gender okay. confusion, yeah. Okay. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He said that I am a spy for the people. That is what does that, I was going to ask you, what does that mean? I think the way I read it is, of course, that... Uh, you, by being a spy in this way, you do something much more radical than being a simple traitor. Let's say I spy for United States in Russia, but then I become a double agent or I betray, and this is still the elementary cheating which is in a way part of the game. But what Assange is doing is in a way undermining the whole field of secrecy. It's something beautiful, it's something that has to be done. It's so is, is there a way of being a responsible whistleblower? Sorry? Is there a way of being a responsible whistleblower? Yeah, I know this is the usual, if you are hinting at this, this is the usual reproach to him. Right. What about all the victims? You right. Here I have two answers. First, uh, listen, what about ten thousands of victims, victimization and so on, that they disclosed? Point two, it's simply not true. They are extremely careful. They, you know, they don't mention whenever possible names and so on. It's simply absolutely not true that irrespective of victims, they are just making documents public and so on and so on. And uh, let me be very clear here. I am not a naive idealist in the sense, oh, everything should be rendered public and so on and so on. You don't believe that? No, no. I'm an old totalitarian Leninist, you know. <laughs> no, I'm only saying that in a situation like this, precisely with the new possibilities of, and it's not only digital technology, it's also, for example, biogenetics. Horrors, I am in contact with some of them, and am I told, really, this is a fascinating topic. What is happening today in biogenetics and all that stuff? You know what? I really think that, in a way, human nature itself is changing. In the sense that things that we took as simply part of our nature become something you can change through technological inventions. Like, for example, no wonder Jürgen Habermas is in a panic. Because already today, you can, you know, enhance your productivity, your attention span through some drugs. Are you aware how this changes the entire notion of, um, of education, of learning? Like, let's say I'm a lazy guy, you are a hardworking guy. You study for days, I take some appropriate pills, I study only two evenings, and I do much better than you, and so on. So, you know, what happens with education? Or if we can even manipulate, control our psychic properties, and governments are doing this. I quote in some of my books, it's wonderful, when I was in Beijing, I met a guy from the top of their 
Institute of Biogenetics Academy of Sciences, and he gave me a wonderful paper, which was something like uh, the goals programmatic paper, the goals of development of biogenetic in People's Republic of China. And the first sentence is, in People's Republic of China, the goal of biogenetics is to regulate physio uh, biological and psychic properties of the Chinese people. And don't blame China here. They are all doing it like crazy. Another thing that is happening, which fascinates me, is our elementary sense of identity is based on this gap between inside and outside. Things are outside here, inside, I can think, I am free to think whatever I want, and so on and so on. But what is happening now, I follow this closely. These are wonderful things, terrifyingly wonderful. They already can establish a direct connection. You must have heard something about this, so that your brain is directly wired, connect. For example, they always, when something horrible is happening, they always first try to present it to you as a great humanitarian achievement. No, for example, I've seen in London, I was there, you have a wheelchair for crippled people, no? What's the politically correct movement challenge people or what? No? Yeah. Where uh, you don't no longer need even uh, that uh, proverbial Stephen Hawking's finger, you know. You think forward, it moves forward. You think left, it turns left. Now, the problem is what? This is wonderful. You are like God. You think something, it happens in the reality. The we, problem is that what goes out goes in also. No? So, <laughs> and, or, for so example, the, I mean, so in, in that particular sense, surveillance is total. Yeah, but even here, I am a skepticist. I had a debate with some of my friends there at Duke, where it's also university. I went there to visit Fred Jameson, my own yeah. but there they have an excellent biogenetic and cognitive science department. You're skeptical about what? About if this really uh, controls us, because you know what immediately what, what, makes what things would, complicated. Well, what would be more yeah, The controlled. Freudian hypothesis. Let's say I claim I can read your mind in this primitive sense. What are your true emotions? But what if you are, in a Freudian sense, a divided self? Which, what will my apparatus measure in you, and so on? Well, you're right. It gets, I... Everything gets complicated, and they admit it, you know. Um, what, what have we, we learned from WikiLeaks? And have we, have we really... A very good question. You I'm see, glad. You are... You are I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, you're I'm not good. a complete idiot. No, 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 no. I didn't mean this as a joke. No, no, what I said is that there are only two types of people in no, the world. No, but I didn't take people it. People who are complete idiots and people who are not complete idiots. I didn't take it. There is no third I way. Di I didn't take it as a joke, but please continue. Okay, yeah. uh, uh, that's so interesting. Let's be frank. I don't think we le really learned anything new. I thought you would say that. Yeah, because it's not that, oh my God, I thought nobody controlled us and now, ooh, I learned, no. What happened is that this became public. We can no longer pretend that we can ignore it. We are forced to accept it. So, so secrecy became public. Yeah, yeah. And you know why this so, I mean, is... But, but you know, I've always been interested, you probably know the, the origin of the word secret. It literally what, means... What, toilet? No. No. Because it, in my country, secret means toilet, no. Well, but it is. It, yeah. means, it means to secrete. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, of sorry. course, yeah, right? Yeah, it, yeah. Mean, it means something that already can't yeah, contain yeah, itself. Yeah. You know, the, the old Thomas Jefferson line that yeah. for two people to keep a secret, one has to be dead. 
I mean, so there is this line. I would also kill the first one, yeah, but that's okay. another story, okay. No, what I wanted to tell you is this, because let's be here very frank. So we haven't learned anything. Ah, uh, but this is not so important, because I know it's the same as, for example, let me make we, it clear what I mean by this. I read somewhere that when Americans liberated one of the camps, the few of them that went in western part of Germany in 1945, they, they immediately sent the army to collect, to bring together all the leading local people there, the mayor of the town, blah, blah, and force them to see the camp the corpses there and so on. And then many, the mayor of the city, I forgot which one, killed himself and so on. I think this was a deep act of hypocrisy. Because with this suicide he wanted to impair to get the message, oh my God, I didn't know it, now I know what horrors were happening in front of my door. Nay, they knew it. They just were not able to ignore it. And I think it's the same here here I'm a little bit of anti-democratic pessimist. In the sense that if you really ask people, like, cut the bullshit, what do you really want from government? I don't think people really want that government should not torture people and so on. The point is, you, uh, you, you yeah, do it, but do it discreetly, I don't want to know it. <laughs> and, so, and, you and, know, and do it in order for what? to help us, to save... People generally accept this, that, you know, this basic right-wing wisdom. Somebody has to do the dirty job, you know. People accept this, you know. They just don't want... It's, do it, do it, don't... Uh, you know, I, I knew a guy in France, forgot whom, who knew the private secretary of François Mitterrand. And, you know, in France, when the state when secret police wants to liquidate someone, like to give a plastic example, if I were to kill you and so on, no? uh, uh, the secret police, if it's not just a murder in battle, but like clear liquidation, no? The president has to sign the order. And Mitterrand here really represented it. He always said, but can't you just do it? No, I don't want, just do it, do it. Don't bother me with signatures and so on, you know. This is what people want, I claim. They want to, I even am more pessimist here, and, and I think that, what is democracy today? People don't want to decide. People want the appearance to decide, but they want someone the to clearly, mm. to, people want to maintain the appearance that they decide in elections, but they want to, somebody to clearly tell him how to choose. They want the appearance of a freedom of choice. And when people... Are you, are you following the, the European elections? No, because I think that uh, Europe is, in a, for obvious reasons, in a real crisis. I even published a short book in French called, uh, this German title from Freud, you know, Was will, what does Europe want? A paraphrase of what do Freud's, want? what, do what does want? a woman want? Was, uh, was will das Weib? And, no? and, and, and what is your verdict? Yeah, it doesn't, no, no. Uh, uh, women, I think, know very well, usually, at least the women I know. But no, no, isn't it obvious that Europe is simply oscillating between a couple of 
models. One is this neutral technocratic model. We should just be efficient, modernize, become part of the global market, blah, but blah, surely, blah. But surely you must be worried by a, a, an emergence of right-wing... Yes, but here I think it's too easy to just blame the right-wingers. In what sense? Usually, centrist libertarian liberals, those who nonetheless care about human rights against racism and so on, they tell us who are a little bit more radical leftists, no, listen, okay, maybe we sympathize with you, but listen, now we have those uh, right-wingers, anti-immigrants, shouldn't we all join forces and blah, blah? I don't think this is enough, because I think that the true question to be, I am a little bit more of a pessimist here. I think that this depoliticized liberal center, no, the typical politics of today, in politics you are neoliberal, although that's another question, does neoliberalism exist at all? I don't think it does. I think in all states who are, which are successful, state is intervening more than ever. But that's another point. And then, but, but it is a point that is something that is worrisome. Or no? No, what is worrisome is it this. We have this liberal center, we have this, like, like in politics, this would be Tony Blair at its purest. Peter Mandelson, his dark prince or whatever, says clearly, in economy we are all Thatcherites. We can only do a real difference in cultural politics, health, and so on and so on. Now, is this enough? I am much more of a pessimist here. I claim that there that anti-immigrant or whatever you call it, populist anti-immigrant nationalism and this uh, neoliberal tolerance built two, two, two sides of the same coin, as it were. The true question is, what is it in today's global capitalism that generates so much uh, anti-immigrant and so on Populism. Are we aware that we cannot dismiss this populism as a remainder of the old time? Is it translated in your language? A wonderful, very simple, but wonderful book by Thomas Frank. You must have in you interviewed everyone. You must have interviewed him. Whatever, what happened in Kansas? It's a wonderful description of Kansas, you know, over the rainbow, one of the states. <laughs> of, which, 30, 40 years ago, was historically the most progressive American state. John Brown, anti-slavery movement, everything. In the last 30 years, it became practically the most fundamentalist state. And then I take another example, Afghanistan. But this is not a backward country. I am, unfortunately, even older than you, old enough to remember when I was young. Afghanistan was, I'm not kidding, maybe the single most tolerant of uh, this Middle East, uh, mostly Muslim countries. They had a monarch who was a pro-Western technocrat, they had a very strong local communist party, religious tolerance and so on in the second or third cities after Kandahar Herat or what. They had a long tradition of Buddhists, uh, Muslims, and, and who is still there uh, uh, doing prayers together and so on. And then, what happened then? You know what? Communists made revolution, coup d'etat, then Soviet Union intervened, America intervened through their allies, uh, uh, Osama bin Laden and so on, financing them. And it is as the result of this, of precisely becoming part of global politics, that Afghanistan became a fundamentalist country. 
They were much more progressive when they were left to them alone. So again, in America it's the same, you must know better than me. According to FBI, FBI is observing more or less, these are official data, around two million people as potential right-wing fundamentalists. Sorry, but the percentage is the same as in United States, sorry, as in Arab countries, you know. So, and I'm not again blaming United States, but I'm saying the true question is, what in today's global capitalism, what inner dynamics is generating populism? I think that we should first admit the complicity of uh, liberal tolerant capitalism. You cannot simply play the liberal game, we should fight it. No, this lib and I think and, that and, the uh, answer is the disappearance of secular left, like in Arab countries this is clear and so on. I think only the left can save us. The, the, the word tolerant, when you use it, I'm always skeptical. I'm also, and I learned the nicer thing from you. You know, the French have a wonderful expression. You know, in French, you know what is one of the local colloquial, I learned this from you, you remember, when we debated, I think, Salman Rushdie with him in Bilbao, that uh, the French, one of the French old words for prostitution house is la maison de tolerance, the house of tolerance. And this, my favorite Catholic writer, one of Paul Claudel, was once accused of being intolerant. And he answered, but for tolerance we have houses, you know. <laughs> I tend to you, agree. You would like that, you would like okay. that. But um, to, to, end, to end on Denmark as we began, um, Snowden, should, should he be, do you think, offered as asylum here in Denmark? If you are courageous enough, yes. And I'm here, I'm not here the usual stupid, totally politically collect leftist. For example, when you had that problem with those Yiland Post or whatever, uh, uh, Allah caricatures Mohammed or whatever, no, I was not simply against you. I even hated those leftists, you know, who just, you know, Whatever you say against Islam, you are immediately accused of Islamophobia, and so on, and so on. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, no, my only problem is that, of course, it's wonderful if you do it. But in the long term, the solution is not just that. No, this, of course, we should ruthlessly exploit this, like, to play, to use one state against the other. You know, and here, United States, here I am critical of United States. I would imagine, yeah. Not so much of explicit politics, but you know, if you want to see the darkest, most obscure, as it were, political unconscious, you should read books f which I am reading and for which I am boycotted by many of my friends. This American Christian fundamentalist Fiction. It's horror. Writers like Tim LaHaye did some... You, you love them. This uh, Left Behind, a series on rapture, all good people disappear, Antichrist is coming, and this guy, LaHaye, the most disgusting person you can imagine, wrote a book, Europa Conspiracy. And the idea is, this is the right-wing American dream. The only good axis in the world is United States-Israel, Arab terrorism is a secondary phenomenon manipulated by Western Europe. The evil is European Union, because European Union cancels uh, 
nation-state authority, and it's the first model of the new world order. So the basic conflict is forget China. With China, we can make a deal. Forget Arabs, no problem, Western Europe. And now you will say this is a freakish dream of some marginal types. 20 million, 20 million copies sold. Yeah, uh, uh, this is after Gone with the Wind or whatever, which is another Ku Klux Klan book, as you probably know. No, but, uh, but what I want to say is that, but look, I was so shocked. I don't know if you remember when different countries voted against the European Constitution, for or against. I think you were the one who voted against, no? But you know, I also called in France, I signed... Uh, 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 I signed uh, uh, a public call to vote against, but for tactical What I want to say is that I was so shocked when people discovered in Ireland, do you know this, that there the campaign anti-Europe, against European constitution, was uh, financed by, by, by CIA directly. Now, this is quite shocking. I think that this is why I still marginally, although it's impotent, ridiculous, believe in Europe. There is a dream in European Union. It can be many things. It can be the worst racism. It can be just... But there is an idea of some larger than nation state authority guaranteeing minimal healthcare, security, and so on. I still think... But you still believe in Europe in some way. Like, you know, when they say, like, uh, okay, now to conclude with Denmark, if you forgive me to quote a joke that I probably in Denmark, Denmark alone, I used it already some five times, my favorite joke about your great guy, uh, Niels Bohr. You know that story, apologize in advance to repeat it, when the idea is he had a country house outside Copenhagen and a friend visited him there, saw a horseshoe above the entrance and told him, but you have this, you know, superstition, horseshoe prevents evil spirits entering the house, and friend tells him, scientist, but you are a scientist, why do you have that superstitious item there? You know what Niels Bohr answered. Of course, I'm not stupid, I'm a scientist, I don't believe in it. But I have it there because I was told that it works, even if you don't believe in it, you know. <laughs> this would be my idea of Europe, I don't believe in it, but fuck it, maybe it will work, you know. <laughs> um, in, 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 in <laughs> I hope you applauded the first part of my statement. Fuck it, not to believe. Okay, um, you, I'm, I'm aware of this only very recently, um, the scandal in Denmark. Um, reporters of the gossip magazine Seog, forgive my pronunciation here, used credit card information from an IT company informant to discover the... Are you not confusing with TV series, Borg? No, but do you, know, do you know about this? No. Snowden commented on it. And said what? And said, big things are happening in Denmark. This week, we've heard that what? the Danish... Ghost we've heard, what? heard that the Danish weekly say and her yeah. paid for access to the highly confidential private records of politicians and celebrities. Anybody who writes an email in Aarhus, uses a credit card in Odense, or calls their mother in Copenhagen, will have their private records incepted, analyzed, and stored, not just by an accountable state security bureau, but even private companies and newspapers. This I'm is, not too much impressed by this. 
First, what will they find? I don't care. You don't care? No, if somebody were to read all my emails with all the theoretical texts I'm sending, my reaction would be fine. Read it. Maybe you will learn something, you know. <laughs> and what do I care with my, I'm not poor, but with my, okay, for me a big deal is, ooh, 5,000 euros I send them there. What do I get, care, you know? So what's, what's the big deal here? Uh, the second point, you, he said, you, you, don't, you don't care. I'm, no. I'm, no. Because this so, is not so where I am. I have my intimate dreams and so on, and even there I basically don't care. Why so are you, you afraid? People are stupid so, out no, there. No, so you don't care being observed? No. No. What do I care? People are stupid. They don't threaten me. It's like showing a newspaper Hegel's logic to a cow. Probably he will read it turned around. <laughs> Because when he says there, oh, experts are, but wait a minute, if you take seriously what Snowden implies there, experts are analyzing it. No, it's stupid computer program. If experts were to analyze it, then 90% of Danish people would have to be employed to analyze all the time what the 10% are doing. I think that all this state control can end only in a big confusion. Confusion, you know, they think they know, then they base measures of, on that which introduce an even greater confusion and so on and so on. I simply don't believe in efficiency on, of this total control or whatever. It's big computers and then, you know who told me even this? Uh, this was one nice joke by Assange. He told me that some of the, they still have inside people from CIA who help them, who anonymously send them data. And they discovered that CIA have some programs of decoding, blah, 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 and their WikiLeaks messages. And at some point when WikiLeaks uh, didn't have enough money, Assange told me that jokingly, of course. They considered the possibility of contacting CIA and tell them, but let's make a direct deal. Like, we will tell you data, send you, sell you our data, and it will be cheaper than all the programs that you used to, you know. <coughs> so, no, I think this is where we should be paranoid, yes, apropos of what is happening to us. And at a certain level, it is like, for example, did you see? Which movie? Was it not Inside Job or whatever? One of those documentaries about 9-11, which, you see how censorship silently works. It got Oscar for the best documentary, but it practically is unknown, you know? Somehow they succeeded in hushing it down, how you call it. And there you learn, of course, that, for example, the 2008 or when, financial crackdown, no, this was not just chaos of capitalism. It was a well-planned operation of some of the big banks. At this level, yes, we have to be paranoid. But you know, like, uh, it's, uh, how should I put it? Uh, we should strictly distinguish this, can I call it naively, uh, justified paranoia, no, realist paranoia from the false paranoia whose model is, for example, anti-Semitism, no? Anti-Semitism is also paranoia, but it's clearly... Really? Sorry? Really? Like, don't, don't provoke me here, because with my best Jewish friend... You have some good Jewish friends. 
I know. Some of your best friends no, are Jewish. No, no, I know the answer for this. To you prove that I'm not anti-Semitic, yeah. I usually say some of my worst enemies are Jews, you know, and this settles the problem. <laughs> but uh, we had the idea of publishing a new edition of the Protocols of Zion, claiming how it's all true, basically. Because what they proclaim, Jews will control the world, no? But Hollywood did this afterwards, <laughs> and so on. So, okay. What I'm saying is that, look at anti-Semitism. It's clearly pathological, but why? And now, maybe you will not agree with this, it will shock you, but I insist. What Jacques Lacan, my father, psychoanalyst, I mean, theoretical father, said about, he had I, a I, one... I, I thought we could have a whole hour and a half without you mentioning Jacques Lacan. I was wrong. You are guilty, because okay. you... you uh, just very briefly, he says somewhere that, let's say, I'm sorry for the male chauvinist twist of this remark, I think it's the same should hold for women, he says if a husband is pathologic, is strongly jealous of his wife that she is just sleeping around, then he says something very beautiful, he says even if all this, his fantasies are true, the wife is sleeping all the time with other men, his jealousy is still pathological. Why? Because what makes it pathological is not, is it true or not, not true. but his private psychic structure where, in order to retain his normality, he needs this kind of fantasy. And I think it's the same with Jews, with anti-Semitism. Let's imagine me debating with a friend in Germany in 1936, the Jews. And let's say my friend, who is a Nazi supporter, says, Okay, Jews are controlling us, seducing our girls, and so on. The moment you accept the debate at the level of facts, you already sold your soul to the devil. Your soul to the devil. Listen, of course it's always partially true. Jews are seducing German girls. Well, I hope they did. And I hope also some Germans were seducing... <laughs> What's the problem? Jews are exploiting us. Some of the Jews were rich, and in the technical sense, of course they were. You know what I mean? Which, what? Pa which part was supposed to shock me? No, this part that even if some of what the Nazis are claiming is true, this in no way justified anti-Semitism. Because what makes Nazi anti-Semitism pathological is the way, why do they absolutely need a figure of the Jew for their social vision and so on and all that, all that. I think that if, if the, again, you shouldn't accept the debate at the level of facts. What justifies whistleblowers? Sorry? What justifies whistleblowers? Public, 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 public space. They are communism in practice, as I wrote recently. In what sense? Communism, although I'm very much opposed generally to Tony Negri, I think all this multitude stuff, it's not an option for the future, really. But where I do agree with him is that the problem today is the fate of the commons, in the sense of something which is threatened but should be the common background of our being. What is the problem of ecology? Nature is our commons, our shared natural background. Intellectual property is the same. Intellectual substance of our being, even biogenetics and so on. And here, they are, as it were, saving our commons. And you know? our commons, here we are in a library, a library is part of the commons. 
Absolutely. This is why I like libraries, precisely because, you know, this is what is disappearing today. We have here, okay, what kind of is another question, and this is mean self-critically, but we have here some kind of a public debate, and this is not to solve questions subordinated to any immediate goals. We just do a useless debate, and I claim all really, even in the long term, useful ideas came kind of a, as a byproduct of useless debates. We need this type of public space where everything can be questioned, and the problem is precisely that, I don't know how it is with you in Denmark, from what I know, your universities are great, like most of my friends from Denmark are from Aarhus. You have their so-called speculative idealist circle, a group of really good philosophers, I must tell you. So, uh, Nothing so, against so, you. So continue. Yeah, nothing. Who are you today? No, no, I mean. Con <laughs> nothing against uh, universities, yours. But what I'm telling is that unfortunately. I mean, continue to investigate in that way. Yeah, that more and more this type of public space is disappearing from universities it's, it's, and has to be done on the fringes of intellectual it's life. It's disappearing, but it came out tonight to hear you. It is hope here, and I'm here a moderate optimist. You, you know what is my proof? Uh, how stupid are my publishers, Verso and so on? Whenever I propose them a big, fat book on Hegel and so on, they always say, well, who will read that? Why don't you write a short book on some stupid? Now they want me to do a book on WikiLeaks, on Big Brother TV. And then we always had the same paradox. My big fat theoretical books, like less than nothing, which certainly doesn't wait less than nothing, it's 1,050 pages, is selling better than, than, uh, than The Year of Dreaming Dangerously, the political book. Isn't this a wonderful data? Nonetheless, all people are not stupid. You can still write a big fat book on Hegel, it finds I think public. That, I think on the notion that all people are not stupid, I should say thank you very much. But where are you here? Thank you. Thank you. We did it. No? We did it. Where are you? Oh, oh my God! Thank you.